Hello, I'm Grayson Bolte, and welcome to another episode of SAE Tomorrow Today. If you haven't already, please kindly take a moment to follow and be notified when a new episode is released. SAE Tomorrow Today is published every Thursday. On today's episode, I sat down with Amy Chu, Director Automated Vehicle Safety Consortium, to discuss when she realized a career in engineering was possible, the real-world application of a driver monitoring system, and how she brings legacy companies and Silicon Valley startups together for the future of autonomy. And away we go. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to the podcast, Amy. Thank you, Grayson. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here. It's great to shine a light on what you're doing with the AVSC because it's really interesting and not enough people know about it. So happy to, to share that story. Before we get into the AVSC, I'd love to chat with you about growing up. Amy, as a child growing up, you were fascinated by technology. Was there a moment or a product that started this fascination? Uh, there's many. <laughs> so I'm not sure where it started exactly, but I think it was a combination of my dad's fascination with sci-fi. Um, as a kid, and I'm seeing this with my own kids, as a kid, you uh, watch what your parents put on the TV. Um, and there was always way too much Star Trek. And I apologize to those who are Star Trek fans, but I didn't really like that show. <laughs> but I do remember uh, watching and their use of the technology and, and computers were kind of like not really a thing back back then. Um, and so it was sort of this fantasy. And I remember that, um, you know, that really was something that I picked up on, like, wow, that's so cool, all the things that they could do. Um, and then my next door neighbor uh, got a Macintosh and that's where I became really obsessed. I was begging my parents to get a, a Macintosh of our own. They didn't, and I couldn't understand why at the time. Now it, it all makes sense. Um, but so because I didn't have access to my own computer or even the influence of electronics, you know, hands-on things, uh, I used my imagination. And so, you know, playing with my cousins or my friends down the street, I always wanted to incorporate computers. And so instead of having a real computer, I built one out of cardboard and paper and lots of glue. And I pretended like I was um, doing the Star Trek thing. And so I think that was probably the start of it. Um, and then it just sort of threaded through life from there. Were you teleporting friends or, or dolls or <laughs> to other of places? Of course, <laughs> of course. So. Yes, all the time. Yep, the dolls were teleporting. Uh, I was always teleporting and I was always in charge too. That's that's a key. <laughs> no, it's, it's incredible because the imagination is, is the greatest gift that we all have because when you sit there and you play with boxes or you play with toys and you let your imagination run, you can develop new things, you can create new things. We all see examples from history from Sir Isaac Newton. Did this whole uh, playing with your imagination, building computers out of cardboard box, did that lead you down this career path? Say, you know what? I'm actually going to work on a real computer one day. I'm going to take my incredible imagination and build something really cool on a computer. <laughs> you know, I wish I could say that was it. Um, but no, it sort of went away because um, another important point is that I didn't have anybody uh, in my life who was technically capable or, you know, even worked in a technical area. You know, my dad was in finance. My mom was a legal secretary. Um, all my relatives were doing um, business type roles. So when I was growing up, I thought, well, what do I want to be when I grow up? I really looked to the people around me and, and you know, engineer wasn't even in my vocabulary at the time. Um, but it was, it wasn't until high school where I started to go into science and math. And I took some computer classes just so I could get my hands on a computer because I didn't have one at home. Um, and I, and I loved it, but I never thought of it as a job until uh, I was in a AP calculus class, which was, you know, it's 
special <laughs> when I was a senior in high school and my, my calculus teacher was like, hey, you're really good at math and science. You should really consider engineering. And I thought, what's that? <laughs> I seriously had no idea. And so I started this, you know, thought, well, okay, they say I could maybe do that. I'll try it out. And that's where, you know, it wasn't until college where I really started to explore a technical field for myself. That high school teacher, then you could say, changed the course of your life. Yes, I would say so. Not one of my favorite classes either <laughs> at, the, at that time. But I will say that in college, calculus ended up being one of my favorites. I really liked calculus and nobody else did. And, and I thought that was weird. And you got to be pretty smart to be an AP calculus. That's like for smart people, which is incredible. It's when you when you look at this and it's probably in the 90s when Disney always did the teacher appreciation. They would do that whole big thing and then they fly the teachers to to Disney World and they'd recognize them. It's incredible that the impact that teachers have on students lives throughout their there's these totally. key moments. It's absolutely incredible. And I'm so happy to hear that you had a wonderful experience in school. So you, you have this great experience in school, you do fancy calculus stuff, and you decide, I'm going to be an engineer. And then you've got this incredible 16-year run at Harmon where you're working on the future experience team that you managed. Mm -hmm. Was that like, okay, future experience, we're going to do some Star Trek stuff? Kind of, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, um, it's important to note that before I got to the future experience team, I spent about 16, 16 years? Oh, 12 years. Okay. The first 12 years was uh, program management. And that was, um, <laughs> I came across that because when I, and I, I have to back up a little bit here because um, the story sort of all makes sense um, if you talk about it together. Um, you know, I, I went to college, I got my double E degree and I was like, okay, I'm going to go bang out some technology. This is awesome. And then when I got there, I was kind of like, oh, this is what it is. Oh, okay. Um, and I just remember feeling like I wasn't as excited as my fellow engineers in the group about, you know, the boards coming in and, you know, us working on them and testing them. I was like, that's cool. But I was more interested in how we got the boards, how we designed them, the tools we used, all the different people we had to interface with. And that was sort of my passion. So um, that's how I ended up in program management in the first place is I, I basically said, you know, I don't really want to be the designer the one banging out the technology. I want to I want to bang out the product, but you know, by working with the organization. And so by doing program management for as many years as I did, it really gave me the full spectrum of how you know, not just the imagination of how technology is um, created and the innovations, you know, come come about, but then how do you actually get it on paper, get it into a prototype, test it out? you know, get it to production level and then actually mass produce these things um, at a certain rate. Like it just the whole process fascinated me. So I got to do that for 12 years. And then when I finally made it to the Star Trek part, like the, the future experience team, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is super cool. I get to think up stuff now and I get to help them realize these things. But I still had all that experience and how hard it is to realize those things. And it was like, oh, wow, you guys need to think about this, 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 and this. They're like, you're crazy. You know, I was, we we're out in Silicon Valley and they're like, we can do anything. And I'm like, well, you could, but, you know, once you get to the point where you have to bridge it from, you know, these cool ideas to something that actually consumers use, there's a, there's a process there. And that was the vision of my CTO at Harman at the time. And when he hired me, he said, we need somebody who can, you know, speak both sides. They can talk to 
you know, the, the futuristic, you know, minds and keep them excited about these innovations. But then they also need to, you know, bridge that gap between these really cool ideas to products we can actually sell. And I thought that was brilliant. Um, I, I, I love that, that CTO um, and, you know, the, the vision that he had for the organization was very holistic uh, instead of, you know, just like trying to make a profit or trying to think of really cool stuff for CES this year, you know, I got to do both. And so, you know, I tell that long story because I think it, it sort of shows um, the broadness of the experience that I've had and how now I get to put it all together. And that's pretty cool stuff. It's, it's incredibly cool. And, you know, hearing that story, the one thing that comes to mind, that's one of the biggest issues that we don't have enough skills for today is supply chain management. And so did you so did you learn supply chain management and how to deal with shortages of chips or are this product's not available or this product's delayed? <laughs> yes. I mean, and I think that's one of the things that makes the job of a program manager at a tier one supplier, you know, really challenging. It's not just deciding. There's a whole process of like deciding how you're going to choose these suppliers in the first place. And then you get the deal all set. Everybody's ready to go. And then there's that long-term production thing. You got to keep the lines running. And as a tier one supplier, your worst nightmare is to have a part shortage. You know, your plant can't deliver what they promised. And then all of a sudden your automotive um, OEM is lying down and that's millions of dollars per minute. Um, It's a serious situation. Nobody ever wants to be in that. So once you've lived through a couple of those horrible times, uh, you really learn quickly how important supply chain management is. Yes. It's an, in, an incredible skill. So you're, you've got this incredible skill on supply chain and product management. You're, you're on the Star Trek team now. <laughs> and then you start w- working on the emerging technology of driver monitoring, which today is in the news for a lot of the right reasons and a, and a lot of the wrong reasons. What did you learn during that experience when driver monitoring and you were kind of building that? And this was you know before all the, the news headlines. Well, first of all, that project at the time, I think it was 2015-ish, somewhere around there. Um, at that time, it was it was really like some Star Trekky stuff. It was like, uh, I remember talking to the, again, this was one of those situations where I was talking to the future experience team and my boss, who was the VP of technology strategy for Harman, and they were like, this is the coolest thing. We're going to be able to tell how hard your brain is working when you're having a conversation, driving down the road. I was like, wow, that's super cool. And we learned about it's the pupil dilation. And, you know, they would say uh, the way I used to have to describe it at the CES presentation was, you know, normally you're you're familiar with your pupils dilating with light, but there's actually different muscles that indicate how hard your brain is working and thus the, the cognitive workload of your brain. So, you know, my mind is just blown. I'm like, wow, this is so cool. But then when I would turn around and try to describe it to the business people, you know, they're thinking in terms of how am I going to sell this? Um, Are my automotive consumers going to want this? You know, and so they'd be like, I don't get it. Why do I care? (laughs) And I was like, yeah, but you're driving down the road and have you ever been on a conference call and you forget how you got there? Like you've driven your whole self there, (laughs) but you don't remember it. And so those were the kinds of things. And and still the the people, even within my own company, who I was trying to, you know, bridge that gap and get them to a place of, you know, uh, how they could utilize this. And and we prioritized driver handoff because at that time, you know, we were talking about um, automated driving, uh, assisted driver assistance, 
So one of the things that we were really concentrated on was the driver monitoring during a handoff. And so all this talk about, you know, the vehicle's going to take over, but then it might have to give control back to the human driver um, in order to know that when the vehicle gives that control back, that it's going to be safe. You need to know if the driver is engaged or if they have, you know, too much on their mind. And, and so that was one of the main points. But it was hard to get that across because there were still a lot of naysayers that were like, oh, no, we don't, we don't want that. Nobody wants that. What are you going to do? Turn off the radio? Are you going to reroute the, the drive? Are you going to, you know, hold my calls? God forbid you, you know, the vehicle takes control of something that I don't want them to, right? And, and so those are real concerns. What about privacy? So there was just a lot of more questions than answers at that time. And so... It was exciting. I thought it was the coolest thing, but yeah, I ran into a place where it was like not nobody was really quite biting on that at that time. I love the analogy of being on the conference call because we've all been there. You're you're focused on this, and you're like, "Whoa, okay, I'm at my destination." That flew by, and you really had no idea because you you weren't fully engaged in driving. And driver monitoring could help make that potentially a safer um, ride for you, but. Today, driver monitoring, as I said earlier, is in the news. We have the privacy debate around driver monitoring where some companies decide to take the data and house it internally. Some companies are doing closed-loop systems where it never actually leaves the vehicle. What are your thoughts on the current state of driver monitoring? Will this become a regulatory issue? Will it become a privacy issue? Is this just going to become an absolute nightmare? Where do you think this is going to go? Um, I think that... My stance on driver monitoring is that it is one of many potential tools that can help with this transition period that we're in. Um, I do think that there's still some unanswered questions about privacy, and I think that's a really big one. Um, but at the same time, I also think that there's got to be this this help with the transition. We're not going to go. And I think this was the thought that a lot of the people back in 2015 that I was talking to they just assumed we were going to get to level four, level five, you know, where the human doesn't have to ever take control. And and so why do we need this little technology? Because it's going to become obsolete super fast. I don't think it's that super fast. I think we still have a long way to go. And so if there is a way that we can maintain the consumer privacy and, you know, understand um, the implications of driver monitoring and become comfortable with it can be a useful tool to ensure safety, because at the at the end of the day, we want to make sure that if a vehicle is taking control of some of my driving tasks, that I know that it knows that I know <laughs> that everybody is going to be okay. And and I think that driver monitoring is an important piece of that. I still I still think so. You're a hundred and ten percent right that driver monitoring is important. You get individuals that are I'm mean, use a blunt term here stupid, reckless that could cause murder by going to sleep in the back of the car as it cruises down the highway. It's completely reckless. They should throw the person in jail and, and make an example out of that person because with, it's just it's dangerous as we go into level three and we see the uh, the big debate around level three and you're really going to, you can make the argument, uh, Alex Roy, uh, who's at Argo now, makes the argument that it's not possible without driver monitoring. When we get to levels four and levels five of autonomy, what happens to driver monitoring? Does that eventually go away or does that stay in there for in-cabin protection or, or is there is it reused for something else? I could see it staying, um, but again, with the, with maybe a different use case. And so, but this also gets into the privacy debate again, but, 
you know, some could say that it might be usable for um, personalization, uh, even authentication. You know, just a few years back, we weren't using our face to unlock our phones either. <laughs> um, but here we are. We're, we're doing that. We're trusting that. So there are possibilities, um, even with safety, too. I could see where um, occupant detection, where people are sitting, um, how much they weigh, <laughs> Um, how tall they are might help with some of the safety features that, you know, would pick up in the event of a crash. I think it could be helpful in that if we could get over the the privacy and security concerns. Yeah. Privacy is going to be the key. And, and Tim Cook, whenever Project Titan becomes a reality, he's going to emphasize privacy. You're going to have other companies that are going to emphasize privacy, but you're going to have that on one spec. But then on the other hand, you're going to have to have all these individual companies work together and, and come together and say, this is how we're gonna do it. And that's one of the really awesomely cool things that you're doing at the Automated Vehicle Safety Consortium. You have these incredible traditional automotive companies that are you know, legacy companies that have been around forever doing really great things. And you've got these emerging tech companies and startups that are saying, you know what? We wanna work with the, with the older companies. We wanna be a part of this. And I gotta ask you, how, how do you get both of these individuals to, to work together? So you have Silicon Valley and Detroit coming together how do you manage that where it's like a, I don't know, if you want to call it like a kumbaya moment. Everybody's like, you know what? Okay, we're going to do what's right and we're going to do what's good. If I told you it was easy, would you believe me? Possibly. <laughs> I think this is, um, this is why I kind of, when I found this role, I thought, wow, this is my dream job because I get to work with the Star Trek people. I get to work with, <laughs> you know, the, the OEMs who've had, years and decades of safety experience. And so they both bring, um, and, I, and I say both, but really there's more than two. But, you know, in our case, if you look at different sides, they, they all bring something to the table and all of that needs to be considered. And, and what I love about the AVSC is that everybody who's a member agrees with that, <laughs> that everybody brings something to the table and that we listen we debate and we try to come to a hundred percent consensus on what we're putting out there. And if we can't come to consensus, then we say, why is that? You know, why is it more difficult for this company versus this company? Um, and it really, it's awesome because it gets the conversations going that maybe aren't being had anywhere else. I mean, where else do you have these types of these different diverse types of companies? hashing out the same topics at the same time. <laughs> um, I think that's really uh, one of the main strengths of the AVSC. And I think it's really cool because it's different backgrounds and different ways of looking at things. So it's not your traditional, uh, my father and mother worked in the automotive industry. They're coming at this from a completely different perspective, looking at everything. I think it's absolutely incredible. Amy, there's a lot of groups, organizations, around the world that are working on similar stuff do you all play nice in the sandbox together does everybody get their truck and go to their own corner or how does that work yeah that's a really great question um we definitely don't take our own truck in our own corner um we really aim to be complementary to all those other things that are going on so leveraging the good work of others um even working with them at times to make sure that we understand what's going on over there um complementing their work and building upon what's going on as opposed to trying to come out with something, you know, whiz bang new. Uh, we are definitely looking to build upon all the other efforts that are going on outside. 
That's awesome. So you're going to build this incredible sandcastle in the sandbox instead of everybody having their own you're going to kind of build one together for the the benefit of the sandbox when this case is the benefit of society yes i hope so the biggest sandcastle you can find so for our listeners that might not be familiar with the sae itc and avsc could you please kindly share a high level overview of of that organization avsc is a program of the sae itc which stands for industry technologies consortia and ITC is a affiliate of SAE International, which is the group that most people are familiar with. SAE International puts out standards based on committees, uh, groups of subject matter experts representing themselves and their own you know, expertise and bringing those into uh, consensus standards. Um, whereas ITC, uh, we bring together groups of um, companies or, you know, academia or, you know, public private organizations. In the case of ABSC, we're a group of companies and each member company is representing their organization. And so that's the difference. And, and I think that is really powerful, um, for a couple reasons. Number one is that you're representing your company and not just your own, you know, technical opinion. So you've got some debate that might be going on in your own organization that you have to bring and, and we can hash out together. But then the second thing that's really powerful is that we uh, we put out these best practices and our members agree to implement them. So, you know, they can't just say we're going to do one thing and then, you know, not do it. They actually are making the agreement formally that they're going to go forward with these best practices on their own. So that means you have seven companies that are, you know, all doing similar things, speaking the same language. Um, and that's really powerful to then take into those standards committees and bring it bring it forward hopefully quicker. It's fantastic because you're, you're allowing these companies to, to innovate without having to go through the very long process of, of standards, which is, is a long process. And one of the really cool best practices that the AVSC has released is the first responder interactions with fleet managed automated driving system dedicated vehicles. How did this best practice become a reality? Did you sit down with law enforcement and first responders to gather their real world feedback on how they currently operate with vehicles and bring it back to the consortium? Yeah, this is a really good example of of how we how we come together on these topics in the first place. This one started out uh, based on a report by um, Crash Avoidance Metrics Partnership or CAMP um, and some research done by Virginia Tech Transportation Institute or VTTI. Uh, they put out a report of, you know, common scenarios that a um, that a first responder, so not just law enforcement, but also, um, you know, f- first responders like an ambulance or um, fire truck or, you know, any sort of personnel that is first at a scene, what types of interactions are really important to them? And so we took that research that was done and we said, OK, we know that these things are really important to first responders. We want to make sure that first responders, you know, just because there's this new type of vehicle out there, they can still do their job in keeping us safe, you know, keeping the public safe. That's hard enough. <laughs> um, and so instead of instead of taking the approach where we say, OK, here's how our automated vehicles work and here's what you need to know, first responders, we said, no, what do first responders need? And as developers, manufacturers, what are we going to do to make their jobs easier? And so we took the the research that was done and then we said, okay, how are we going to uh, put these into practical, um, feasible uh, recommendations for industry to implement? And, um, you know, went through the different types of interactions, uh, different use cases and 
you know, what would be the next step as a design, you know, as you're designing this technology, what should you take into account? And I think that's really important um, because if you don't factor those things in from the beginning, you'll, you'll struggle later on to try and squeeze them in. Um, and the other part that we really uh, like to highlight there is that there needs to be an interaction plan. So you, as your company, as you're putting these vehicles out either for test or, you know, full scale deployment, you need to have an engagement with the first responder community. And this is happening today, you know, in the in the states where there's testing on roads, um, companies are getting together with their local uh, first responder communities and, and providing this. But our thought was, well, if there's consistency in it and a common language, then it will it will help spread the word a lot easier and, and make it more uh, comprehensive for the first responder community. Um, you could also use these recommendations to start on a training program for first responders. So we see a lot of possibilities, you know, maybe a gap that was there before that, that we're filling in. And that, that's a good example of what we're trying to do everywhere, um, looking for those gaps and trying to either uh, fill them with um, some sort of solution or recommendation or um, start a conversation around it. Are the interaction plans generally accepted by the local police, the, the sheriff, the highway patrol? Do these companies go out and say, um, hello, Mr. Sheriff, hello, Mrs. Sheriff, we're going to operate in your thing. Here's our interaction plan. Uh, my name is Mr. Grayson, and here's my cell phone numbers of our vehicles. Please call us. Does that, does that go into the interaction plan? That That is a, a very simplified view of it, yes. But, but basically, that's what it is. I mean, um, there's local um, regulations for, you know, maybe some some steps that a manufacturer might have to take in order to get their vehicles allowed on the road legally. So maybe a Department of Transportation will have, you know, their own rules, like here's what you need to provide me uh, in order to get your vehicle on the road. And so they'll go through that. Um, and one of the uh, items in our uh, best practice is actually to make sure that there's some way to uh, contact the fleet operator. So yes, there has to be some sort of contact with the um, with the company. And you have this, this law enforcement individual cruising around in their car or on their motorbike and for something happened and they have to engage with the autonomous vehicle, how, how will they end up engaging with it? Do they call Mr. Grayson at dispatch and say, Hey, we've got an issue. Or does the officer knock on the window and say, hello, Mr. Robot, open up, please. How does that work? <laughs> well, hopefully, um, hopefully there's an interaction plan and, and some training that has already happened. You know, that's part of what we're trying to say, but let's, let's use that example of, uh, securing a scene. Um, if you're, um, the law enforcement officer and you're about to approach a vehicle, you need to know whether it's okay to approach it, right? You want to make sure it doesn't drive away, it doesn't drive toward you. Um, there's lots of factors. So you want a way to disable it. Um, you might need to move it out of the roadway. You would need access to something that allows you to do that. So depending on the manufacturer, they might have different ways to solve that issue. Um, it might be calling the fleet operator and saying, you know, hey, you need to take remote action and move your vehicle off the road. Or there might be a feature within the vehicle that just, you know, allows the, the law enforcement uh, individual to control it in some way. So we're not, you know, in our best practices, we're not taking uh, the approach where we say it has to be done exactly like this. We're saying you need to have the capability for someone in law enforcement um, or in first responder capability to disable a vehicle. Um, you need to make sure that they can approach it safely. Um, you should make sure that, 
there's a way to determine the presence of passengers. Are there passengers in the vehicle? Is it empty? There has to be a way to show that. Um, how you do that as a manufacturer is up to you, but these are the key uh, aspects that you should consider. And that's all on the, the interaction plan that's on mm -hmm. file with the, the law enforcement or first responders in that community where the vehicles are operating? Yep, that's the idea. It's, it's, it's fascinating because you're doing really good by the community, but you're also building trust. You're saying, hello, yes. Mr. or Mrs. Law Enforcement. We're a trustworthy partner. This is how it works. So I got to give you a lot of credit there because it's something that's really smart. I'm, I'm really good friends with the founding team at Zooks. I know that was one of their uh, Mark Rosekinds and Burke Kaufman's priorities from day one was to put that out there with the interaction plan because Mark's father was a law enforcement official. So to him, it was deeply mm -hmm. personal. That was one of the, the first things that they did. And it's really great to see in the consortium and companies outside the consortium all, all doing really good. And recently, the AVSC has released a best practice for metrics and methods for assessing safety performance of automated driving systems. Could you talk about this uh, uh, as well, please? Yes, I would love to. So this is a big one for us. Um, and this is our, our most recent publication. Um, it's available on our website. We want you all to go download it and read it. Um, but but this was, you know, one of the reasons uh, that AVSC was formed in the first place was to, you know, how do we how do we ensure that these vehicles are safe to go on public roads, right? And and we know that this is a really complex topic, that it's not something um, that's easily solved. And so, um, you know, over the course of, gosh, the last uh, year or so, we've been talking through these things. And, and also, I'm sure you're aware, there are a lot of discussions going on in many different disparate organizations, lots of research, there's standards making in progress, there's tons going on with this. And so, you know, one of the things that we pointed out, again, looking for gaps is, um, are we speaking the same language? You know, I think that if we're not, if we're not talking in a common language, then we're going to really struggle to communicate with each other and understand each other. And this is just talking about the technical community, right? We'll get into the public a, a, in a minute. But basically, um, you know, how, how do we talk about these things? Where do we begin? And so the way that this uh, best practice is laid out is that we're saying we have a we have identified a foundational set of metrics that we want to everyone to start with. And, and we as member companies are going to start with these. Um, they may seem pretty obvious, but it, it would, it's funny to think that, you know, um, one person or one company is calling it one way and another company is calling, you know, the same thing, something different. And so just by commonizing the terminology, we're making a step forward. Um, the other thing that this does is it enables um, consistency of safety performance um, assessment for, you know, and, and again, our, our consortium is talking strictly about level four and level five. These are the ones that don't need drivers. Um, and in some cases may not have a steering wheel or brakes or anything. And so, you know, we're not talking about the, the level three technology, um, that might be out there today. So, um, but one of the things that we want to make sure of is that there's a way to tie in, um, existing data that you know may even be able to be compared with human driver uh, statistics today. So some things like crash, crash frequency, crash severity, um, citations, you know, or uh, citable, uh, citable situations. And so um, 
we want to make sure that we're, you know, we're not waiting for those things to happen. There has to be some sort of predictive element too. And so in our best practice, we, we talk about, you know, here are the outcomes that can be correlated to this existing data, but here are some predictive indicators that we think are the most important that you should look at first. And oh, by the way, these aren't going to work on their own. You know, we don't want you to take our document and say, this is it. This is all you have to do. <laughs> We're basically saying, no, this is a starting point. And we, you know, it is expected and assumed that you're going to take these and build upon them with your own, you know, flavor of metrics, however you want to do it. But if you're doing these things and we're, we can all talk to each other about these same things, then we've made a step in the right direction. What is the website that listeners can go to to read about this that you mentioned? The website is um, absc.sae-itc.org. It's a tough one. <laughs> or you could just do a search for ABSC. <laughs> it's a good one. So I got to ask you, so a company implements an ABSC best practice. How is trust developed with the public? Is there a a good housekeeping seal of approval inside of a mobility app? Like, how is that saying, hey, we're a company that's doing good. We're not cutting corners. We're putting safety first. How mm -hmm. does that communicate to the public in a way that they can understand in a non-technical jargon? So that is the challenge. <laughs> I think that, you know, I mentioned earlier that getting um, engineers or technical minded folks speaking the same language is the first step. Um, I think that, you know, we can't wait to start talking to the public until we have all this stuff figured out. So we have to do it in parallel. Um, but I do think that, you know, I, and I wish that there was an app for that. <laughs> I wish there was a way that, you know, we could just say, yep, this is good, but, but that's not how it works. So um, I, in my uh, career, you know, in being in a technical field, my whole career, you know, you always go to the family parties where they ask, oh, well, how's work? What are you working on these days? And, and that was always my challenge to try and take what I'm doing and translate it into something my uh, my grandmother would understand. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think that that's a really important skill. And so one of the things that we're doing with AVSC is as we're writing these documents, we want them to speak to all audiences at the same time. And we want to make sure that it's written in a way that, you know, Maybe not my grandmother, but, you know, someone who's not an engineer could pick up the paper and be like, oh, this is cool. The the companies that are in the ABSC are really keeping uh, safety at the forefront of what they're doing. It's really it's really interesting that they're doing these things. That's about all we're going to get at this point. But then the second thing that we can do is, you know, things like we're doing today with this podcast or, you know, speaking at panels, talking to public agencies, just getting the word out there that, you know, there is collaboration happening and it's for the purpose of, you know, setting the foundation and creating that common language and just getting everybody talking about it. Because if if we don't understand how these vehicles were put together, at least at a very rudimentary level, we won't want to put our kids in them. You know, I I think that we have to think as human beings, too, about are we going to trust our lives with these things? And if so, what do we need to know? And so every time we're we're talking as a group and we're doing these outreach things, I try to think of it that way. Like, what would what would my aunt or uncle or mom or dad, you know, want to know before they feel like they can get into uh, an automated vehicle? What you just described is, I think, was one of the the best things that ever happened in terms of public adoption. Was when SAE hosted demo days and we we went around the country. 
We put individuals in the vehicles, children in the vehicles, and we surveyed them before and after to build that trust. And they were able to meet the engineers and they were able to interact with these individuals. And there was this wonderful couple. They drove all the way from Hershey, Pennsylvania to Detroit to go for a ride because they said, I want to experience the technology so I could tell my grandkids about it. And there was this meaningful impact. And we had individuals that went in there and they were terrified and they came out and said, I'm extremely bored. This was great. This was boring. And we're like, okay, goal achieved. But we eliminated that that myth by putting them in the vehicles, allowing them to see meet the engineers, experience technology. And that's what has to happen. You can't put them down and say, biddy boppity boop, here we are. You have to build public trust. And as we look to, to build public trust and you look to implement, uh, you know, continue the best practices, what is the future of the AVSC? I think that the AVSC will evolve um, as needed. <laughs> so... The, the industry is moving very fast. Um, some may even claim today that it's already here, which I strongly disagree with. There's still a lot to, of work to do. Um, but I think that when, when we describe AVSC and the topics that we tackle, we will show on a slide usually a puzzle piece or a, a, you know, a puzzle that's unfinished and there's pieces going here and there and wherever. We'll continue to try to find where those missing pieces are and then try to fill that gap. And so wherever that takes us, um, that's where we need to go. And I think that the other uh, key thing is that we need to um, continue to learn from other industries. So there are other industries that have had automated vehicles already of some way, shape or form. You know, um, what can we learn? What can we learn from what's already been done? How can we partner that with what we already know about building safe vehicles today? Um, and you know that's where those decades of experience come in. So all of this bringing together and having that community that trusts each other, that knows that they can speak openly uh, on a topic and representing their company, I think is just fantastic. It's magical. I love it. And that's why you're in this incredible position because you have this incredible imagination as a child because then you have the curiosity and going back to Star Trek, what can we build? So you're always trying to put those pieces of the puzzle together. So you're the absolute right person to do this, frankly, the perfect person to do So I can't wait to see <laughs> what the next puzzle piece is. And Amy, as we look to wrap up this insightful conversation, what would you like our listeners to take away with them? I think um, the first thing is that companies developing this technology are first and foremost, thinking about your safety. <laughs> this is not, you know, like any other consumer device where if it locks up or you get the blue screen of death, you know, it's just annoying. We're talking about people's lives. And, and I want the public to know that that is paramount. Like that is the priority. And in fact, um, the goal, I didn't even realize this until I got really into uh, these discussions in this community that the real goal is making driving safer. So instead of looking at it like, oh, I'm going to get into an automated vehicle and my my um, risk has just gone up, think of it as your risk is going down because you're taking out human error. Now, again, there's a long way to go, but <laughs> but I think that's the ultimate goal for all of us. And so we'll see less crashes. We'll have less fatalities. Um, will be safer. Yeah, and as we heard, safety is paramount for this technology and this technology will improve safety. Today is tomorrow, tomorrow is today. Always be curious, always be learning. And Amy, thank you so much for coming on the SE Podcast today. 
Thank you so much. This was so fun. <laughs> Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. Tune in next week to hear from Alex Rodriguez, co-founder and CEO of Embark Trucks, as we discuss building a business from testing to commercialization. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.